0: Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of Dress Media. With over 8 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common.
1: Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Tis the season, Dress listeners,
0: and by that we mean it's time for our annual hiatus where Cass and I take
1: some time off from making brand new episodes to relax and spend some time with family and friends. But in the meantime, please join us as we retrace our own fashion history footsteps with a selection of our favorite past episodes. Happy holidays to all who celebrate, and we can't wait to catch you all super soon for season seven of Dressed, launching end of January 2024. Please enjoy this episode from the Dressed wardrobe of over 450 past shows.
0: Okay, listeners, it's been a minute since I've opened the show up with a bit of poetry, which I'm oh so fond of doing from time to time. So I hope that you will permit me to share uh, with you all a little ditty from the year 1631, which was written by John Taylor. And it goes a little something like this. A needle though it be but small and slender, yet is it a maker and a mender? A grave reformer of old rents decayed, stops holes and seams and desperate cuts displayed. And for my country's quiet I should like that womankind should use no other pike it will increase their peace and enlarge their store to use their tongues less and their needles
1: more <laughs> <gasps> I guess I shouldn't have been surprised by that last <laughs> that last little bit I mean the history of needle making is quite gendered I suppose yeah, but yeah.
0: And I, and I should also mention that that is actually um, a longer poem, and so I condensed that a little bit. So <laughs> so you
1: get the gist of it, though. And this poem was actually included in the book recently published by today's guest, Kate Seculis. Kate is currently a PhD student at Bard Graduate Center in New York, where the focus of her work is on, in case you haven't guessed it, the history and the art of mending her work teaching mending practices around the globe is supplemented by her writing, which has appeared in Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, the New York Times, you name it, the list goes on. And we know so many of our listeners are makers themselves. So we are delighted that Kate agreed to put down her needle and pen for a moment to join us today on Trust. Kate, welcome to the show. Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Despite the fact
0: that we were at FIT together for a brief moment, um, you and I actually did not meet at FIT. We met a couple of years ago when as part of a Fashion Studies Alliance event that I had organized. um, It was a mending event at the Textile Arts Center in Brooklyn. And I think that perhaps we might speak about that event maybe in a little bit as we get further into the episode, but but it's very fortuitous that here we are again today, meeting up, connecting to talk once again about the topic of mending. So welcome to Dressed.
2: Thank you, April. It's so exciting. I'm so happy to be
0: here. We're, We're delighted to have you. So our regular listeners will know very well by now that lately I've started asking our guests how they first came to this be working in the field of fashion studies or fashion history, and I always say that there's no one way. Everybody kind of has their own path and, and entry point. However, I have to say that I suspect your personal background might just be the most varied of anyone that we've had on this show to date, because at various points in your life, you have been the lead singer of a punk band, you've traveled the world as a food and travel writer, and you were concurrently, at the same time, a professional Boxer, so how did we end up <laughs> in this realm of fashion studies? I know it's ridiculous. <laughs>
2: <The> biography dated <laughs> that way, right <laughs> out. Uh, it's fabulous. No, well, I was at the at the same time. I mean, there was always clothes, and I grew up, you know, really round the corner from Portobello, the famous Portobello Market, London, and it was, you know, junky. Then it was not. I mean, junky with a Y. It wasn't fabulous in the least but I went there as a child I'd go there and collect clothes and it was an obsession right away and of course through the clothes I became interested the clothes themselves in a way taught me to be you know to look into them further and to want to know about the history and all that so I was always reading at the same time as collecting And I guess it just went right from there. So all along, it was an avocation. And then when the magazine I was editing was killed, that was the dream job. Then I decided I would do something more serious, you know, do this properly. And I did the thing called Refashioner, which was selling your old clothes to each other. Which is a website. It's a website. It's still there just, but it's going to be subsumed into a one website, which has the mending and the me stuff and Refashioner dregs all in one that's happening soon yeah so a circuitous route but a consistent obsession and then the academic part came after that yeah and I realized I have to do this even more
0: and we are here today, of course, to talk about your recently released book, Mend, a refashioning manual and manifesto, which is simply terrific. I've already told you this, but it is not only is it super informative, but it's also a ton of fun. There's all these little moments in there where you make these cheeky little comments that made me laugh out loud. <laughs> when I was reading the book, like there was one point where you call moths certain small flying bastards. And I just like cracked up. So i I. Really really enjoyed it because clearly you enjoy writing um, and have a lot of fun with it. So th- that's just as a fellow writer, really one thing that I really appreciated about the book. Yeah, of course. So you begin the book by saying that, quote, mending has baggage. Patched clothing speaks of shame, poverty, and drudgery, even of slavery. But mending is a big word. It's about repairing more than clothes. So I'm hoping you can explain to us at its most basic level, what is mending and why is this practice about more than the actual garments themselves, the repairs to them?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, you, you can't mend spitefully. I think I say that in the book somewhere. You can't mend at all without being conscious of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And if you're conscious of doing something physical that, that, that repairs, then I think you're kind of opening yourself up to a, more, to a bigger version of that. So that's at the broadest level, but I mean, any kind of mending is good. I think it's sort of clear, especially today we're speaking on election day, and I think mending is a very (laughs) necessary process right now. And, you know, it's really as basic as that. I'm sure we'll get into more specifics, but mending is conscious. You're making yourself part of a solution
0: Mm -hmm. in many
2: different levels.
0: Yeah, and before we dive into the history of mending, I think that first we have to talk about the intrinsic value of cloth historically, because that plays into this broader history that we're going to talk about. And you give quite a few examples um, in the book of how cloth was exceptionally valuable, particularly in the ancient world. Would
2: you speak to us a little bit about this? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, for one thing, I mean, your audience knows this already, but generally people have completely forgotten if they ever knew that clothing and textile was extremely valuable because it had to be produced from scratch at every time and all clothes were handmade and textile was hand woven etc so yeah i mean in the um egyptians um linen was currency to the ancient chinese silk was a form of currency and this continued for you know hundreds if not thousands of years so literally money Mm -hmm. (laughs) before there was money there was cloth and cloth was the most valuable thing and the most valuable thing that most ordinary people owned and even less ordinary people but you know we we don't have any conception of that these days no and it lasted for most of history for millennia
0: really arguably like uh, it's only the last 200 years that we have a different way of thinking about textiles
2: exactly and even even less I mean because the mid last century there was mending was normal mm-hmm. in, in the average home yeah it was just done and that's you know that's really recent it's not even hundred years so yeah absolutely we, we've it's very recent and we can fix it
0: yes. Even far beyond antiquity, as we wander into the quote-unquote modern age, like, you know, that I was just referencing the 18th century, and yes, before anybody sends us a message about this, like, from an academic standpoint, the 18th century is indeed considered the beginning of modern thought, so we still see how crafting a single garment is exceptionally labor-intensive, and you do this really fun outline of this story of a young American teenager her name was Elizabeth Fuller and she was living in Princeton Massachusetts in 1790 and she was making her father a coat so would you share this story with our listeners because I think this really really drives home this point of how precious not only unsewn textiles were but also garments were considered at this time.
2: Absolutely, and I've got to say that comes from a book which, whose name I hope we can put in the notes somewhere because I totally borrowed that from someone who I, um, you know, obviously they're in the notes. Yeah, that was um, just an example. Of, that was a great, very concise example that I found that of, of the way that things were. So yes, this young girl, she was fifteen. Um she her mother gathered, I can't remember I should look it up as I speak, but they, they gathered the linen, retted the linen, or was it wool? Whatever it was, the fiber had to be gathered and then it had to be spun into thread and then it had to be woven. And in this case, this is in New England, and the it was very common, everyone had their own equipment. And if they didn't, then they outsourced it to the local person. So it was sent out to be dyed. And then it was brought back into the house and then it was woven and then it was sewn by her mother. And that took from February to June for this one garment. Yeah. And that's a documented one, but every single garment just about that existed had to be done that way. And not always in one household. There were you Could send out, and richer you were, the more likely you were to do that and not do it. But that was common, and that would have been you know, let, let's pretend that we would have been as ordinary as we are now in, in that era. That would have been us, we were all in, in that boat, and it's just we don't think of it.
0: So, look, we're talking months and months and months of work for both her and her mother to create one coat for their father slash husband. So, you know, when you realize the incredible amount of labor and time that went into creating a single garment, that makes perfect sense why clothing was really considered precious commodities at the time. And for that very reason, all throughout history, there have been dealers of secondhand clothing um, as well as professional menders. So I found this really interesting in your book. Can you tell us a little bit about the Scrutari, the so I'm gonna. I might butcher this. Correct me if I'm wrong. sarcinatories. is that I right? believe so. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, later on in history, the botchers. Who were these people? What were these professions?
2: Right. Well, you know, different bits of academic academia know about these, but they don't seem to have put them together in the in the timeline. But when you do, you realize that the history of clothes is actually the history of mending, and not just partially, but completely. So the Scrutari in ancient Greece, Scrutopoli, same thing. They were the secondhand dealers and the Sarsenatoris, the tailors, but tailoring was mending because, well, certainly as we know, we all know about togas and, you know, peploy and all those um, draped cloth garments, those weren't sewn. They were patched, sewn together, mended, mended. So those dealers in in the clothing of the day were actually mending. Mm-hmm. And it stands to reason, but you have to sort of look between the lines. History, and researching mending history is all about looking between the lines and mixing up different kinds of sources and looking for these things that weren't written about because they were so ordinary. They didn't have to be and they weren't interesting. So... To us, it's very interesting. And then when you get to the medieval times, which, of course, you know, we're talking about hundreds of years, but there was a whole that trend of dagging and, you know, making edging that was cut. So cutting was much more part of constructing of a fashionable garment than the kind of tailoring that we think of now. But the earliest tailors, the, um, the ones who made the poor the pour pointier, and the slasher, dagger, and botcher, they were all in one kind of guild. And literally, um, when the, the guilds formed in England, they were literally the first guild of tailors and botchers.
0: Oh, interesting.
2: So a botcher is somebody who does dagging and makes pour pointier. And they were also sort of one kind of guild, pre-guild guild of what became tailoring. So in fact, at the very root of tailoring, we have cutting, mending, botching, patching, all mixed up. And it is the history of mending really predates the history of fashion very directly. If you follow that through line, I hope I didn't botch that. (laughs) (laughs) In a different
0: sense of the word.
2: (laughs) Uh, Yeah. But I mean, that word is such a funny word that we... I guess we misused it because we don't know its its um it's history. They
0: were menders, basically. They were fixing things.
2: So all the tailors, all the makers of clothes were mending and patching.
0: Yeah, and, and one of the things I thought was really interesting is that mended garments were actually even found in the tomb of King Tut. So you, these mending techniques were even being used all the way back in ancient Egypt how do those compare to modern day mending techniques, the the ones that were found in the tomb of King Tut?
2: It's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, there, there are, um, in fact, Gillian Fogelsang Eastwood, who's the director of the, um, the Leiden Textile Center, has written and um, researched the history of Egyptian mends and found you have to look for um, archaeologists to find research into early mends. And... You know, they're pretty much all the same techniques that we use, but there is one Egyptian technique for darning, which does not, I haven't tried it yet, and I must do, but it's making lines of chain stitch and then um, attaching them to each other, joining, joining them up, which makes complete sense. You're really doing another weave structure, but slightly more complex than we do a typical darn. So. Yeah, I'm still obviously looking into them, sort of doing a taxonomy of men's through the ages gradually.
0: Would you say that some of those same techniques are comparable to some of the techniques that are still used
2: today? Oh, absolutely. The exact same thing, because, you know, mending is not greatly, you know, technical. It's very basic stuff. And most people who did it probably didn't have that great skills. They, they were just, you know, they just needed it to still work. Mm-hmm. So you see a lot of terrible you know felling and just I mean really badly done men's I love to see those from all those you can get and if you find men's on you know extant garments which as you know are very rare but when there's nearly always some kind of mend on them there's often something you can find that hasn't been really looked at mm-hmm. because no one just thought to do it and I think now that everyone is going to start to do it because somehow it's in the air. It's not just me. Yeah. But it is at the moment just me in certain ways. So there are things that I've I've felt a real sense of discovery. I just that that um King Touch himself, you know, there's a there's a kerchief and it's in the Met and it has a visible mend on it. So I've got it in the book as the earliest visible mend. It probably isn't, but no one else has um can, you know, please contradict me. Someone else find one, but I was very excited
0: to find that. More research to come
2: on that yeah, at absolutely. some point,
0: I'm sure. Um, and and I just like to point out that this practice of mending is, of course, cross cultural. Right? It, it spans time as we know it. You know, from Japan to Bangladesh to West Bengal to Korea, all of these places have their own very unique textile traditions, which involve patchwork and also mending. So, would you tell us a little bit? about these. I mean, Boro alone probably should be its own episode. Um, all of these could be their own episode. And I, I was actually earlier this year really hoping to have the curators at the Boro exhibition that was up at the Asia Society in New York on within COVID hit and the show came down and that went a little haywire. But I'm sure our listeners would love to know just a teeny little bit about Boro, Cantha, and
2: Sure. Yeah. So yes, you're right. They, each one of these could go um, to a whole episode length, at least. And your borough is particularly um, relevant to the trend of visible mending, which I'm very involved in, and that's sort of where this book came from. Because a lot of people are kind of doing that or saying they're doing Bora men's on their jeans or sashko, which is the, you know what sashko is, it's the, well, basically what it boils down to is running stitch and patterns, Uh but it's extremely complex and it very much belongs to Japan and Bora belongs to history. We cannot do it now because it belongs to a certain period when there were a lot of sumptuary laws and there's terrible conditions and, um, poverty in the rural north in Amore province. And to get through this, people had to mend upon mend upon mend upon mend the little tiny scraps, because borrow means scraps, of fabric that they owned. And it was too cold to grow cotton. It was mostly hemp. And these pieces are now extremely sought after, but they were for a long time, I mean, for yeah, centuries, sources of great shame and either discarded or worn to bits literally and there was this one um, the guy that whose collection ended up at the Japan Society the base of that exhibition which was fantastic I managed to get that Chuzaburo Tanaka he personally went around and collected from the families with great respect and by getting to know them over many weeks and months these pieces. So that's how we can have, you know, we can see these very important and very rare pieces. And they're now on the market for thousands of dollars each. And that is a strange, um, there was a minge movement in the 20s in Japan that made um, craft work, you know, that gave that a, a voice and made it important and understood, but this wasn't really part of that. This was a separate ev- evolution. So, Bora belongs to a time and place, and we can't do it on our genes, but we can pay ho- homage. I would say homage because I'm English. Homage to it, <laughs> and it, it's a it's a heartbreaking craft tradition that mm. has you know so much behind it. So that, that's Bora, and Sashko is related to it, but that's a very much grander and more intricate version you can see in museums and. Shogakpo, that is the Joseon dynasty, did I say that right, of um, Korea. And it's a much more um, fancier version of using scraps and scraps and scraps with very specific kinds of seeming. And it's lesser known, but it looks, again, these all look very beautiful and modern to us now, these traditions. Kantha, sewing together lots and lots of layers of old sari, is running stitch it boils down to that and the cantha stitch is very much something the um the results of using the stitch is called cantha and people collect those now and anyway all of these traditions each have a world behind them and they belong to the culture that they belong to and we can honor them and we can learn about them but we can't really do them ourselves yeah that's the sort of point i think needs to be made because um Cultural appropriation. We need to watch that.
0: Yeah, for sure. 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 But I mean, uh, to our modern eyes now, I mean, you already pointed this out, but these are supremely beautiful.
2: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: And their meaning to us now is something very different than what they met at that time. And that's why we have to be very, very careful about that.
2: Yes. And I mean, your listeners know this stuff, but really we need to get that word out there and, and have those pieces mean something again in, in our world there should be exhibitions there was an amazing one uh, repair and design futures at RISD museum oh i missed that year. it was amazing do they do a book no sadly there was just one um issue of their journal mm-hmm. which um is really all about that which i think is probably sold out i have a copy I'll lend it to you. I'm sure we probably have it at FIT in the library. You might <laughs> have one in your collections that you look after. I hope you do. If not, then we'll call Kate Irvin and get <laughs> her on the show as well, because she is. It's her labor of love. Took about ten years, and she might have a couple of copies knocking around. She's amazing.
0: Hey.
1: So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
0: Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm-hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. One thing that we haven't touched on yet was who was doing all of this mending? Because regardless of geography or the period of time, it seems like mending has historically more or less been deemed quote unquote women's work, right?
2: Yes, unfortunately. There were, I mean, men it certainly did mend, especially workmen, workmen's. I do a pun sometimes <laughs> <laughs> i'll try not to. yes so yes women but certainly the laborers in this in this regard mm-hmm. as usual
0: um one of the images that i love the most in the whole book was this insane double page spread of dozens of pairs of 19th century stockings and you have them all like so artfully arranged and they're so colorful and beautiful they have crazy patterns and colors and i I found it so charming that all of these 19th century ladies under their cage crinolines, and depending on what decade it was, maybe their bustles and, you know, wearing corsets, of course they were wearing these kind of completely out-of-control stockings underneath. Absolutely. And it was just like a fun, such a fun s- secret, really, kind of.
2: Yeah, but they did love to flash an ankle. There was a whole, I mean, men ogling them on street corners that was written about. Yeah. They, were, they knew, you know, the men knew what was under there. <laughs> it was not, it was, they were supposed to be flashed.
0: Yeah. So I bring up stockings because I'd like to talk about them in the context of technology so when do we first see net stockings appear and as this technology progresses what is the relationship of stockings to mending and specifically darning what is darning
2: goodness yes well darning is um basically it's a plain weave structure appended to a garment or a hole to, to cover the hole And it was a ubiquitous skill, everyone, but everyone did. And to some extent, I mean, far higher up the social scale than you'd imagine because it was connected as, you know, it was long ago in art and it was a a virtue, it was a sign of virtue. And you would do your own stocking darning, otherwise you would be thought a slattern. You did (laughs) your own burning and it was a horrific, horrendous and endless task that you it was it was thankless continuous because you were always you know we know stockings wear out if we wear them I mean even now that happens so we just discard them but they had to keep them going until they didn't Mm -hmm. because the ones you're referring to I mean, by that time the the market was so exploded it was so massive and the, the consumption rate was accelerated to such an extent that they didn't necessarily mend them at all. I and mean, we now we get to where we are now. That's the through line kind of where it started. So stockings were really the garment that most said mending and especially, as you say, darning, and that most connects to our level of consumption and our problems that we've reached now in our contemporary markets.
0: Yeah, and I made made that connection just simply thinking about fast fashion, right? So basically once the technology to produce stockings got to the point where they were produced en masse and they had dropped in price, people didn't take the time when they got a hole to darn them anymore. They just simply discarded them and that is the same relationship that a lot of people have with fast fashion today. They'll wear something a couple of times and then it's no longer novel so in the trash or in the landfill or to the donation center it goes
2: right and that's where it it started happening then i mean it was at um 1864 the circular stocking loom was invented and immediately you know became stockings were churned out meanwhile concurrently this terrible issue of sewing women i mean i've studied it particularly in new york because this was the center And there were um, 35% or more of women of New York were so-called sewing women who were slaving in sweatshops. And it was very similar to the situation now, except they were right under our noses. And that's what actually led to a change in that time and that moment, and a sort of resurgence of mending and darning actually but that's because they were living with them and at some point could no longer ignore the terrible poverty. I mean, terrible.
0: Yeah, and we've talked about this definitely before on Dressed, about how the clothing industry and the human rights abuses, whether it was in the 19th century in New York, which, as you point out, it was something like in the 19th century, something like 95% of the clothing that Americans bought was produced in the U.S., and now it's something like 2%.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, it's horrible (laughs) Uh, it's beyond it's such an extreme number isn't it yeah insane It's
0: kind of staggering Mm -hmm. so i'd like to kind of fast forward a little bit and it goes without saying that um clothing rationing or restrictions during the first and second world wars also saw this promotion of mending versus buying, in certain cases, it wasn't even possible to buy new clothes, depending where you are, were in the world. Um, there were all these caveats and restrictions um, about purchasing a new garment, but would you tell us just a little bit about mending culture during World War One and also World War II? Because again, this could be an entire episode, and we have briefly here and there on certain episodes kind of referenced it already, but this was like literally promoted by governments mending.
2: Yeah, well, finally, I mean, World War One. Although you know the, the involvement of the US in World War One wasn't as you know much as it was. When I come from England, so in England there was more directly. But there was there were massive um, mendathons here in New York City for the war effort in the First World War, and there were just you know up to uh, half a million garments were mended in um, one year, and there were literally you know late grand ladies in the ballroom at the Waldorf and places that were opened for this. And they, they were taught and men, they, they mended for the soldiers. And there were, you know, you can find articles about how patches are, um, are patriotic. Uh-huh. So it's okay now to, to look a bit patched up. It's, it's wrong to look like you're, you've just walked out of the store. And that's, you know, the First World War. And then the Second World War, of course, we get to the most famous um, of all slogans, make, do and mend. So even if you don't know where it's come from, you've probably heard that as a hashtag. And that's from, that comes from, it was actually invented by the war and by the Ministry of Trade in England when clothing rationing was brought in in the Second World War. So rationing didn't happen here, but here we had wear it out, make it do or do without." But... There you know the the u s of course had the depression, so all these things converged into making mending happen again and making it something that normal people did as a matter of course and then in England, it was enshrined into culture completely. but then you know the moment the war was done and rationing was eased, then what did everyone want to do? have enormous you know new look skirts and be absolutely profligate in their spending and have all the latest fashions so that kind of ended. Especially, you know, probably accelerated by the fact that there were all these restrictions and needing needing to patch for so long. So, yeah, in a, a, yeah we should do a whole thing on that. The, the wartime eras of the mending of the early 20th century.
0: So the late 40s, early 50s, not a great period of mending, as you mentioned, but... Turn around to the late 1960s, we see a reemergence and into the 1970s. And you note in the book, you say, quote, home sewing boomed to a $3 billion industry, which would be about a $20 billion industry today. And that 80% of teenage girls in the early 70s At this time, we're sewing, which is probably pretty staggering to a lot of us today. And, you know, sewing was very mainstream. um, But at the same time, as you know, you write, quote, a boatload of embroidery and embellishment, lots with the look of visible mending, but not actually performed on holy clothes. So it was making this comeback, but it wasn't for the same purpose within kind of, counterculture style of the late 60s and early 70s. Would you talk to us about this embroidery,
2: quasi-mending aesthetic of the late 60s and early 70s? Yeah, I love that era. Of course, you know, the hippies were behind it and that became, you know, absolutely adored by fashion. And so it spread and it spread fairly fast. But I think the hippies themselves, which were such a much smaller quotes of the people and then me think oh we think of hippies as quite a big trend and we think that maybe they were everywhere but they were real hippies who hated that word they called themselves freaks <laughs> but really quite a small I've never heard that before that's amazing yes I know right I mean, I'm sure they didn't all hate it forever, but that's certainly at the beginning, the radical beginnings of any movement. They're always the ones, you know, the the trailblazers. So I think they were actually mending because part of the whole ethos was anti-bigness, they called it sometimes. There's actually a New York Times um, headline, revolt against bigness, and that was about early hippiedom. So they would mend and like, the look it's a bit you know related to the punk aesthetic again that came back not that long after but you know when fashion got hold of it and then it trickled down and it became general then everyone wanted the look of patching and embellishing that came really from the hippie trail of you know really india north india and wherever they went they would pick up the so-called ethnic clothes and so there were all these trends for peasant wear and ethnic wear as they called it you know, all this, but anyway, how that fed into mending was then the look of the patching and embellishing was something everyone wanted. And so it became a of marketing. And then that ultimately killed it really, <laughs> but everyone, but also we, because at that point, you know, ready to wear was still, was coming, was made in America in this market and, and was expensive. So people made clothes uh-huh. for that reason, hugely for that reason. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that huge, enormous boom in home sewing. I think we've largely forgotten that the, a lot of the sewing that was done at home was kits. There was a massive kit culture and, and market. So there were, there were departments in all the stores in New York. The one in Macy's and one, the one in Bergdorf's was called Biggie Does It. I love that. B-I-G-I. <laughs> I have no idea why. But they had a you know home sewing kit department at Bergdorf Goodman, for goodness sake. I mean it was really mainstream. And that was because clothing, you know, ready to wear was expensive. It wasn't the only reason it was also trendy. And Vogue had a do-it-yourself issue in I think it was April of 71, maybe July. Anyway, it it was big. It was mainstream.
0: And then it died. <laughs> well, pulling us into the present day, you have this whole section in your book where you profile contemporary menders and contemporary mending practices, which was really, really fun. Um, and are there any um, contemporary menders that you would like to speak about? I was super fascinated by both uh, Miriam Dim's logo removal service and also Michael Swain's free mending library. I mean, these are so... So imaginative and cool. I mean, they're kind of like spanning this practice of mending
2: also kind of like with contemporary
0: art practices, I would argue.
2: Absolutely. Well, that's what I'm after for, for visible mending now. I think I always think it's more art, less Etsy. Mm-hmm. More art than Etsy. You know, just mm-hmm. really, it's, it's uh, there's certainly an art to mending and to make it as a performance art as Miriam Gim does and Michael Swain did. Is just extraordinary. But Swain was Michael Swain was, there, as far as I can tell, the earliest of these of modern mending people who do something with the craft and make it. So he had a cart, it's a converted ice cream cart, push cart that he took out to the Tenderloin starting in and uh, first 15 years. It started in around 2000 and he was really ahead of any curve, but he didn't do it for that reason. He just wanted to do something for San Francisco, for his city, and especially this really kind of not rich area, to say the least, the Tenderloin. And he took out this cart and he set it out once a week. And he would mend for anyone who brought something along. He'd mend their thing. That's so cool. I know, it's so cool. There's a little bit out there As people interviewed him at the time. It's worth looking him up. And he's so awesome. I mean, he's really just loved everything about what happened around it. It became a symbol. You know, we were talking about mending right at the beginning. What's bigger mending than mending? What's what's a bigger way of mending? And he was just doing that for mm-hmm. San Francisco and for people. And it just creates a wonderful mini, it's a microcosm of a society that could be in a way. And Miriam Dim, I love her. She just takes she excises your logos and puts a different shape in it. She likes to say it's a shape, never before seen shape. She doesn't want the logo code. <laughs> she wants a new shape altogether. And it started as a performance piece. And now, I mean, it's something that she just continues to do. She's a textile artist and actually a systems artist, she says now, because so many different things go into her work.
0: Mm-hmm. So cool. Just so I could visually explain this to our listeners. Let's say, for instance, you have a t-shirt with a Nike logo on it, right? You turn your t-shirt over to Miriam. She will cut out that area of your shirt and then replace it with a different textile below in this really cool, interesting, like graphic shape.
2: Yeah. A reverse applique. Yeah. And yeah. Exactly. In a shape that is un unheard of before that's <laughs> <laughs> hilarious I mean she's just really funny so to read if you look at her website and there's stuff on there that will make you laugh
0: uh-huh. and her last her last name is spelled uh, D-Y-M correct if anybody wants to look her up
2: yes yeah and then I've also got the sort of foundational Visible Menders of England because it sort of got started there this particular round of mending and especially shout out to Tom of Holland, who I call the godfather of mending, whether he likes it or not. And he he sort of named it and, and started doing it a bit before anyone else in this time around. And he does really beautiful work.
0: And there are like many, many of these artisans, artists, makers that you profile in the book, um, several different ones. So that was a really fun part for me. the last half of your book was also really interesting because as the title implies, when you declare it to be a manual, the whole last part of the book is actually about getting started, learning how to mend practical instructions and the art of mending. I mean, you cover everything. Like there is no excuse for you. If you read Kate's book, not to know how to do these things. I mean, you talk about the tools, you talk about specific stitches, what type of men's work for certain situations and certain fabrics. So it's extremely comprehensive. And I even really love, you have all these charts in the book that like detail the difficulty level of certain techniques and also like working with certain textiles. So I'm curious about how you personally came to develop this vast... Knowledge about the practice of mending.
2: Yeah, well, trial and error, which is what <laughs> I recommend. The first, what I've tried to do with the instructional parts is to cater to. I mean, if if you know how to sew, you can show, you can drop in and page whatever and and skip the first bits. But if you don't know how to sew, I think it's really hard to start because you don't even know how to hold the fabric. And those stitch guides online—they don't really tell you the things that really happen when when your thread gets all knotted and what you can do about that stuff so I try and guide you through all that and then um for this well I've always sewed my learned up you know my mother's knee so the sewing part I've always been able to do and the mending part yeah I said trial and error and it really is a question of just over and over and over again trying different things on different fabrics and different garments and different places and seeing what work so I've built up this sort of expertise from something that didn't have any instructions anywhere (laughs) except except there were you know there are some instructions there's some I, I collect um mending and darning books and guides completely so I've also devoured all of that stuff that I can find and and then there's this nice community online you know on the usual the Instagram and we, we really are, it's a friendly, I don't know how long it'll last being genuine, but it's fantastically open and we share ideas and techniques and are all encouraging and also funny. So there's um, a, a mixture of all those things. And in the end, you know, I wanted to make some kind of structure for the kind of men's that you do nowadays on the kinds of clothes that we have. And so I did um, a periodic table of mend elements to kind of structure the whole thing, which is silly. But.
0: <laughs> it's very fun. One of the things that you talk about in the book is that mending equals community and also mending equals
2: activism. Would you speak to this a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it sort of stands to reason that now that we are um, – I think everyone who's listening, I should think, knows about the fast fashion yes. stuff. And <laughs> now, you know, that with the COVID, um, a lot of the huge companies have um, reneged on on orders that they had pre-COVID, and that's all going on. So, I mean, it's only getting worse at the moment. But we have, um, just by mending visibly, you're showing without any words that you have kept this from the landfill. It's that simple. It's like a badge of honor. And you make something beautiful and unique to you. So you've bonded further with this garment that you already thought was nice enough to keep going by mending it. And you're going against the the, the grain, your anti-fashion industrial complex. You're keeping something going that had a built-in obsolescence. You're, you're refusing that message. And it's very direct. I never used the word craftivism. I, it had its day, it's fine, but it's not what this is. This is there's so practical that it's you know, there's no downside. It's ironic that amend is now um, a luxury item mm-hmm. the time it takes. But then, you know, using your time that there's that that's another whole issue that's involved in it, because how is how have we sold our time and how are we being made to give it up to you know certain. Um Silicon so Valley operations, yeah, we sure. can reassign our hours to be menders
0: yeah and and you even point out that some of the best visible menders like have to turn away work because they are overwhelmed with people's requests and and that you can make a pretty penny if you're really good
2: (laughs) yes indeed and i'm actually you know this has been um put on the back burner but tragically i'm doing my my new website which will have it will have a um menders directory a directory of people who will mend for you Mm -hmm. because completely free for both ends, you know, because there's no such thing. And I think that all you can do at the moment is troll Instagram and try and find someone who's your style, who's got, you know, and find out how to get in touch with them. It's quite hard to, and people are always asking me, you know, who who can mend this? And I forget, I want to have that directory at hand. So yes, people are now making a living from mending, which is delightful and needs to be spread. And it's come full circle. (laughs) Exactly. And actually for the new era, it's a whole uncharted universe waiting to unfold. It's completely, it could be huge. People are already, you know, there are designers doing remaking, refashioning. Mm -hmm. And that's got a great future as well. But it all goes together. And we need to use the billions of garments that already exist.
0: Absolutely. And in your book, you also give tips for editing your closet, how to stay organized and care for your clothes, which is all part of this, of course, as well. And also, you discourage people from donating unwanted clothing.
2: Why so? Well, we know that um, there's. A, you think that you're just doing something good because you're giving away your stuff to people that need it or can make money for people that need it. But, you know, 85% of stuff in, that we donate does not get sold. I mean, some of it then gets recycled, but there's so much that cannot be recycled because of the way we mix fibers, basically, in, one, in two words. But it's not getting rid of it. You're displacing it. You're not um, making it go away, and you're not doing any good. And then the whole in markets that are overseas, especially in African countries, you're not doing them any good necessarily either because you're interfering with their indigenous owned textile industries and that is not helping either I mean it's a it's a it's got lots of knock-on effects that it's just worth knowing a bit more about before you just lively dump your stuff in the goodwill
0: mm-hmm.
2: good Ill, goodwill industries there's another bit of an opaque business model yeah not necessarily all good at all and um, so there yeah there are better ways to pass on your unwanted things
0: yeah And I loved this little bit that you put in kind of towards the tail end of the book. You talk about acquiring garment, not as a transaction, but something more akin to pet adoption. (laughs) (laughs) And I love this so much because obviously you have been doing this much longer than I have, but uh, for the most part, over the last five years or so, I don't buy new clothes anymore, unless it's a designer that I know personally, I I know their ethics and, and kind of what their brand is all about and they practice transparency but I've also started applying this to anything that I bring into my house that's not just clothing but like why do I have this and like if I bring something new in I'm like okay so how am I going to get rid of this if I have to like and what is my level of responsibility to this voting with my dollar to acquire this object. So, you know, it's like this thinking about this line between desire and need. And I'm just curious about your thoughts about this and how you practice this personally.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I practice it by having way too much stuff, but then on the other (laughs) hand, I enjoy stuff and I'm good at it. I'm good at, over the years, I've honed ways of living with the stuff. You have to be organized. So I put some of that in the book, especially, I mean, where it pertains to clothes, how to keep organized. And, you know, there's no doubt there. You have to, you can't just let it overwhelm you because then you will die under a pile of you know, old sweaters. It, it will smother you. <laughs> you need to keep on top of it. But, um, you know, th- this whole reclut- decluttering thing, I mean, I said it, <laughs> accidentally said recluttering because what you're doing when you declutter is just reclutter somewhere else. And I always think I have the set point of stuff theory that I made up where, if you get rid of stuff, you're just going to have to get that stuff back. And because you, you have a set point of your of things that you need around you, you're going to get those things. Back. So look after what you have and take care on the way in and figure out your system that works for you to keep it organized and, and keep rotating. I have a whole thing that I do with rotating seasons of clothing. And by that, I don't mean just summer and winter, but the things that I'm liking at the moment I will put those where I can see them and um have you know in my reserve collection area I'll put things I'm not wearing at the moment <clears throat> and then when you find them again it's that famous shopping your closet I do that all the time from way before that phrase was invented I've always done that and it's a delight you know we need to have fun and we don't have fun anymore we feel burdened and overwhelmed and we feel that that was a mistake and we feel guilty and all those emotions let's just redo it let's reboot literally and just enjoy your things and if you're not enjoying them then think how you can give them to someone who would like that garment or cut it up and make two other garments with it just all sorts of creative ways to rethink what you've taken for granted for so long. Yes,
0: for sure. There's nothing better than that feeling of like going through your closet and you're like, oh, I forgot I had this. And then it's
2: like, That's right. it's like you got something new all over again. Well, exactly, shopping your closet. And it's you know, that is the much more delightful because you liked it enough to get it in in the first place. And I think, you know, all those wardrobe consultants that tell you, if you haven't worn it for a year, then it's no good. You won't want it anymore. That is the opposite of the truth. Mm-hmm. If you haven't, if you liked it and you bought it and you put it aside for five years, that's when you're going to find it again and think, oh, my like what you just said. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yeah. I love that. I forgot <laughs> it completely. And, you know, so do not throw it away if you don't wear it. If you just bought it and it was a real mistake and you haven't sort of rethought this whole process yet, then, yeah, you might have made a mistake. And that that last thing you bought, maybe that should. Not that one. <laughs> maybe not that one. But- but the things we've had for twenty years—I mean, I might things that have gone vintage in my closet. That's those are my favorites. And oh I've, yeah, have many.
0: I have um, this Norma Kamali jumpsuit that I bought probably like twenty years ago that I still wear like once a week.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, exactly. I mean, actually, that, it doesn't have to be Norma Kamali. This actually is an Old Navy t-shirt. It's, I mean, I'm sorry for my sins. I didn't know any better. And when I was first in New York, New Old Navy was really exciting. But I still have it, and it's got men's all over it. And it's, it was, I think, on sale in the first place. It was almost worthless by any standard except my own, and now it's one of my favorite things. And it's not you know, not a good piece. <laughs> but you know, I actually enjoy keeping um, the fast fashion going, especially because of its built-in obsolescence. You're really thumbing your nose at what they want you to do with it, which mm-hmm. is, of course, just hard.
0: Yeah. Kate, this was super duper treat to talk to you today um, about your book, which all of our listeners should order immediately. And I promise you all that this book will be put to use. It's not just going to be one of those books that sits on your shelf and that it looks pretty. Um, you're going to pick it up and read it again and again and use it. Um, and You're going to find tips and tricks and stitches. Um, so before we sign off for the day, did you have any final words on the art of mending for our listeners?
2: Oh, April, thank you so much for that. <laughs> First of all, um, oh, I do say um, do Instagram. It's in this case, it's a benign field for mending. And, and I'm at visible mend. I've got one with my name, but at visible mend. That's yeah, got a lot of things funneling through it. So, and hashtag visible mending. So, do that. And my main thing to say about mending is just do it. Never mind Nike, sorry, I just borrowed that, but it is so much more fun than you think. Mm -hmm. And what I've found is that every single person that's tried it immediately loves what they've done when they've done their first visible mend. It's so delighted beyond what you can imagine. You really need to just do it. And you can't go wrong because you can either unpick it or else you were going to discard it in the first place. Or, best of all, more is more, just go over it some more until you. This massive like assemblage on your T-shirt—it's <laughs> really fun. Let's have it fun. It is. It
0: is. I actually, um, we—I I think we referenced at the beginning of the episode that we met at a mending event um, where we were using golden threads, and it was part of this game. Called golden joinery, and it's kind of based on the art of kintsugi, which is an Asian tradition of repairing porcelain um with these visible lines of gold. So you're 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 actually highlighting the flaw in the piece or or where it was broken. But I have kept that going. So now when I mend anything, I've continued to use metallic gold thread. Golden
2: gold. Oh gosh, that's so hard to work with those threads. Those metallics are pesky. They can get very knotted and difficult, but. Well, I do, I do very simple mints, so there's that. That's good. Simple is good. Yeah, yeah Marguerite and Saskia, The mention are out there in the book as well, and they are fantastic. Golden joinery is a brilliant thing. I love it.
0: Yes. Yeah, so, that was a good day, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a lovely day. It was very cold that day, but we had a really good time. So, Kate, thank you so, so much for joining us, and we look forward to your next book whenever that comes out. <laughs> so <laughs> keep us posted.
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much, April. This has been just pure delight. Yay. Thank you. Kate, thank you so much for
1: joining us to talk about the history and the art of mending. What a wonderful episode. April, something about this feels so important in this moment when many consumers are reconsidering perhaps their relationship with their clothes and the fashion industry as a whole is really reconsidering its relationship with itself. So taking up mending is one way we can all do our part. And who better to learn from than Kate, who is an expert mender and cultural historian? Yes. And and she really knows so, so much on this subject. She always
0: likes to joke that when she's finished with her PhD, she will be a doctor of mending, <laughs> which I find quite lovely. And I actually was so inspired that same day that we recorded this. Um, I picked up a cashmere sweater that my boyfriend was looking to recycle. I was going to take it to the textile recycling center because I had a few things that needed to go in. And his sweater had several holes in it, so he didn't want to wear it anymore. And this also happened to be the day of the election. And so while we were sitting there on the couch that night watching the results come in, I grabbed my sewing kit and my golden threads, and I just sat there and did an overcast stitch all the way around like 17 holes in this sweater. So it's really beautiful now. It's, it's very much so something entirely different because, you know, it's still, it's dark gray, and it has like these gold little rings like sewn all over it. Um, but it's still nice and soft and warm, but now it has this kind of like punk aesthetic. And I have claimed it now since I did hours of work on it <laughs> as my own. And um, it will go on and have, you know, a whole brand new life in my closet, not his.
1: <laughs> yeah. I have to say my husband is the artful mender of our family. He does a lot of kind of patchwork. He has this denim like button front shirt that had a bunch of bleach holes in it. And he took a red bandana and did the same thing, did like a stitch around the edges. And now he has this really cool, unique item. So I think a lot of our listeners should consider doing it and and seeing what becomes of their old pieces. I mean, you really can give it a fresh start. So I'm feeling inspired to pick up my sewing kit now too. And I bet so are many of our listeners. So we will let you get to it. That does it for us this week, Dress Listeners. May you consider the potential of a new life hiding in all of those distressed garments in your wardrobe next time you get dressed. Dress listeners,
0: we might be on hiatus right now from launching brand new content, but that does not mean Dressed has gone dark. We are working away on content for our next season and our upcoming classes. And if you would like to reach out to us, we're still here. You can reach us via email at hello at dresshistory.com. And dresshistory.com is, of course, our website where you can sign up for our newsletter or our upcoming classes and tours. We recently announced the launch of Dress the School of Fashion, which is our platform for our online classes, which will make their debut in January with Cass's What Women Wore to the Revolution, 100 Plus Years of Transformative Fashion.
1: And our website is also where you are going to find our expanded offerings of in-person trips and tours, starting with April's soon-to-be bi-weekly Fashion History Friday Nights at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. And if you would like more details about April's Tours or my class, you can head on over and find all the deets at dresshistory.com. And if you want to say hello, you can also, of course, always DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, which is where you will find visuals accompanying each week's episodes.
0: Are those holiday gift cards burning a hole in your pocket? Well, you might consider heading over to the dress bookshelf where we have more than 120 of our favorite fashion history titles and books featured on the show arranged there just for you head over to bookshop.org slash shop dressed. And each of your purchases from the Dressed bookshelf go through an independent bookseller. You can also find a link to our bookshelf in our show notes.
1: And did you know you can listen to Dressed ad-free for just $3 a month? You can use the link in our show notes or the button in our Instagram link tree to subscribe to the exclusive content of Dressed, which is the ad-free version. Each episode will show up in your feed just like normal, but without the ads. Thank you as always dress listeners for your continued support and may you consider your own fashion history, past, present, and future next time you get dressed. Season seven of Dressed coming your way late January, 2024. Dressed, the history of fashion is a production of Dressed Media.